Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Amara Jones. Welcome to the TransLash podcast, a show where we tell trans stories to save trans lives. Well, I am back from a vacation that I just took, one that I needed after a really intense and brutal year. I know that so many of you are getting ready to do the same, and so are many people who are on the TransLash team. They needed to. So we decided to take this month to present to you podcasts, which you may have missed over the past year or so, some of our favorites, which we believe you should definitely have heard. We had a whole conversation, and these are the ones that we came up with. Today, we are thrilled to present to you the conversation with Sean Saifa Wall, a tireless trans activist in the fight for intersex liberation. Human beings are like flowers, um, and there's so much variation. The problem is, as physicians who see this feel that intersex should exist in these two boxes, either male or female. This, for me, was one of the most poignant and eye-opening conversations that I had where I learned about the way in which how we approach gender can be downright oppressive in the most excruciating and personal terms. It feels like sometimes that the way that we approach intersex issues in this country can be tyranny, whether or not it's medical tyranny or sociological tyranny or even tyranny with regards to psychology and psychotherapy. And we'll hear all of that in Sean Seifewall's story, but there's also a tremendous amount of hope. So make sure that you hang in there through the difficult moments to hear what they have to say. Now, just so that we're on the same page, intersex refers to those whose bodies, whether in terms of genitalia, hormones, chromosomes, or internal anatomy, don't conform to traditional medical notions of male and female. It's captured in all the things that I just mentioned that I learned. Intersex people continue to face extreme stigma and oppression, including violent medical procedures performed on them without their consent. The presence of intersex people throughout history disrupts the simple notion of biological binaries, either one or the other, male or female in strict terms. Now, I want to reiterate the fact that this conversation is painful and difficult, so we want you to take care of yourself as you listen to that. This is our version of a content warning because there will be some tough parts of this where you'll hear about invasive medical procedures that intersex people undergo. But for all of the reasons I've outlined, it's important to hear all of them. Before we get to this conversation with Sean Seifawal, we're going to start always as we do with some trans joy.
One thing lifting my spirits this week is the work of an organization that helps show intersex people that they aren't alone. That's why I'm highlighting Interconnect, a group that links intersex people and their allies with support groups. Interconnect hosts a monthly peer support group as well as online hangouts on Discord and Facebook. They also offer one-on-one meetings for people who are new to the community and might be nervous speaking in front of a group. Here's Courtney Skaggs, the group's volunteer and engagement coordinator. I kind of went through my own journey um, and experienced an identity crisis in 2017 and 18. So I reached out to the community and found Interconnect, which was formerly the AIS DSD support group. For me, I I did a lot of work of radical self-love and found that that community piece kind of wrapped it up for me, or at least put the bow on it of like, okay, I'm not alone. I've done this hard work. um, And let's let's try to give back or make sure that we can build this better for other people. And especially for intersex youth, you know, so that we can build this foundation that they can grow into a community that is loving and supportive and um, sees them for who they are. Courtney, you and everyone at Interconnect are trans joy. With that, let's get to it. Today, I'm thrilled to be spending our entire program with Sean Saifa Wall. Saifa is Black, intersex, and trans, and is a trailblazing figure in the fight for body autonomy and for freeing us all from medicalized notions of masculine and feminine biologies. He is the co-founder of the Intersex Justice Project, a groundbreaking organization dedicated to ending intersex surgery in the U.S. and around the world. Saifa is also the former board president of Interact, Advocates for Intersex Youth, which worked with the Southern Poverty Law Center to bring lawsuits to protect those who are intersex. Saifa's work led to the first ever hospital in the U.S., the Lurie Children's Hospital of Chicago, to stop performing non-consensual intersex genital surgeries on infants. But its impact doesn't stop in the States. Saifa's global research on intersex human rights will form the basis for an upcoming report by the Open Society Foundations. And right now, Saifa is the Marie Curie Fellow at the University of Huddersfield in England, where he's examining social policy for intersex people there and in Ireland. So it comes as no surprise that Saifa has been featured on ABC's Nightline, BuzzFeed, and Huffington Post, among others, and has a TED Talk. And if that wasn't enough, Saifa is also a visual artist and has a dog named Justice. Saifa, thank you so much for joining me today. Yes, thank you for the invitation. Of course, of course. Um... Before we get into um, many of the topics that we want to cover specifically about the intersection of trans and intersex issues, which goes often unexplored and unconversed about, I wanted to just start out with your beginning, Hmm. (laughs) where you were born and where you grew up. You were born in the Bronx, and I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about your family and your childhood. I think often, you know, as an intersex activist, I think a lot of the focus is on my experience with surgery, my genitals, my sort of political beliefs and my social justice beliefs around this issue. But I really 
enjoy talking about my ancestry, my lineage, because I think that's so important because I think that helps to create a more holistic sort of view or perspective of who I am as an activist. So my upbringing was chaotic. You know, I grew up in the Bronx during the crack epidemic, the HIV AIDS epidemic. My father died in prison. He died from HIV, which actually really politicized me around HIV at an early age. Like, you know, when I was 14 years old, I was volunteering at the gay men's health crisis in New York City. And, you know, I'm the youngest of five children, um, now four, because my oldest sister passed away. Both of my parents are deceased. And I think it feels weird to be, you know, still, even though I'm 42, to not have parents, right? And I, and I think my relationships mm-hmm. with my siblings, and I think what it speaks to is just the impact of trauma, the cycles of trauma and violence and addiction that I grew up with. And it wasn't totally that, right? Because I think if it was just addiction and violence and trauma, I wouldn't be here. So I think there were windows and opportunities for laughter and for joy and for coming together. And so, you know, I think for me, when I talk about my intersex story, I talk about just my uncles, my cousins, my siblings who also have the same variation that I do. And anyone listening would be like, wow, that's so cool. You have people who are just like you. And my response is always, you know, this is a testament to the shame, the silence and the stigma that still surrounds people with intersex variations that even in the same family, in my family, that we all share the same variation, but we couldn't talk about it. You know, these are the layers, right? And these are the layers that I try to bring into my work to add the complexity because I'm not just intersex. I'm queer, I'm trans, I'm black, I'm living abroad. There's just so many layers. Really appreciate the fact that you start in complexity because I think that that's where people have to dwell in, in order to totally understand and embrace what it means to be intersex and how being intersex disrupts, I think in good ways, notions of biological, quote, clarity, close quote. Hmm. Um, And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about when you first knew that you were intersex and what did that mean? I mean, you just spoke about that you were born into a family where there are other people who are intersex, but there was silence and stigma around it. So it wasn't as if you had the support that people may naturally think that one might have. So I'm wondering, when did you learn that you were intersex and that your body may just function differently than other people's? I just want to do some education right quick. So intersex is sort of defined as sex characteristics that include hormones, genitals, reproductive organs, and chromosomes that are considered by the medical establishment to be atypical for males and females. And there are 40 documented intersex variations. And supposedly, which I think is more, but uh, people with intersex variations comprise 1.7% of the human population. Almost two out of 100 people. Right. You know, like that's that's lit. 
You know, my particular variation is androgen insensitivity syndrome, which means that when I was born, I was born with genitals that were atypical in the sense that they decided to assign me as female because my phallus wasn't long enough or big enough, according to the phallometer. But they also wanted to do surgery on me as a child to make my genitals appear more feminine. Can I stop you right there? Sure. So there's something that's called a phallometer. They like measuring. Correct. They're inspecting the genitals of babies. Yes. They are. Whenever a child is born, depending on how the genitals appear at birth, if the the genitals are not clearly you know, male or female, which is so arbitrary, right? Mm -hmm. Then they sort of bust out the phallometer and they're just like, well, if if it's a certain centimeter, then according to this ruler, you know, less than a certain percent, then this clitoris, because the clitoris and the phallic um, tissue are similar, it's the same, the child will be assigned as male. But sometimes, you know, with human anatomy, there's so much variation because it's not only the clitoral phallic tissue, but it's also just like the placement of the urethra and the labial scrotal folds. Human beings are like flowers um, and there's so much variation. The problem is, is physicians who see this feel that intersex should exist in these two boxes, either male or female, which actually ends up causing a lot of harm to children who are born with these variations, myself included. Some person, when you were born, looked at your genitals and was like, we're going to whip out this thing called a phallometer. And the phallometer said, okay, this looks then to be probably a female. Correct. On my birth record, it said that the the genitals were atypical. They, I think they wrote ambiguous genitalia. And then they assigned me female, but then they also made the recommendation that I would come back for surgery. And my mom was like, no. According to my mom, before she passed, we had a conversation and she told me that literally the pediatric endocrinology department at Columbia Presbyterian Hospital, where I was born, literally hounded her for two weeks, literally called her and was like, you know, you need to bring in, you know, your baby, you need to bring in your baby. And my mom was like, why is this so important to them? And because of who my mom was, she was like, you know, my mom, no one was going to make her do anything she didn't want to do. That's where I get it from. So she was like, no, but it wasn't until... Like I was 13 years old and I was seen by a pediatrician at Columbia Presbyterian Hospital that he saw that I was developing as male. And because I was assigned female at birth and I was starting to develop as male, it it wasn't lining up for him. And he essentially told my mother that my undescended testes were cancerous and he recommended surgery. What is an undescended testes? What is that? So testicles are meant to live outside of the body, being a scrotum and undescended. They were in my groin area. I'm not unfamiliar with intersex issues, but in describing how random it is, I'm floored that it seems as if someone looked at you and said that you were female, then they just marched that on your 
birth certificate. So your mom just raised you as that. Then you get to a certain point where you're developing as your body wants to develop. And someone from the medical establishment, a doctor looks at that and says, this is wrong. And then comes up with a reason to, quote, fix it. Correct. That's correct. You have the surgery. They, they He lied, right? Said that they were cancerous, ha- gave an excuse to remove your testes. And then what, if any, was the impact on you after that surgery? Yeah. I mean, I think the context is that they removed healthy reproductive tissue and whether I would be able to have children or not is, I mean, now it's, it's, it's a non-issue because my testicles are gone. But I think the solution would have been to monitor sort of the progress of any cancer that was developing. I like to say that I was castrated, which is what happened. And I was put on estrogen and progesterone. Now, this is where things get really interesting, right? Because When I got my medical records years later, the surgery happened when I was 13. I got my medical records at 25. You know, the insurance company paid for an archaeectomy, which is the removal of the testicles. And for some um, transgender women who want bottom surgery, that's how it's coded. So even though I was assigned girl, I had testicles. Insurance paid for the surgery in 1992 at a time when transgender women and transgender people were still being denied gender affirming procedures. And I think it's really critical to highlight that because one of the central issues in this matter is that intersex people are subject to these forced sex reassignment surgeries, and trans people literally have to fight, literally have died in order to get that same care. The surgery created a lot of dysphoria because even though I was a little confused at the way my body was developing, I wasn't hostile to it. I was curious about it, right? Like I was like growing facial hair and like I was, I had muscles and like I was like, wow, this is cool and I'm confused, but I'm going with it, you know? And I think with appropriate psychosocial support, I probably would have transitioned at 13 or 14, but I wasn't given that chance. So can you talk about the intersection of being intersex and trans? I want to preface by saying that the sort of intersection of being intersex and trans is special. It's a special one. When I decided to transition, I had so much love and support from my FTM brothers. You know, many of us had lived as butches and had, you know, butch dykes, studs, whatever, and then just decided that we wanted something different. We wanted to sort of move further along in our masculinity. And I think having that camaraderie, having that support really endeared me to the trans community. Can you talk a little bit about when you realized that what was done to you was wrong and when you decided to do something about it? And I'm wondering if rage had a part of it as well. Of course. You know, rage definitely figured into what happened. I think rage, rage and love fuels my activism. 
anger at what was done to my body without informed consent and love for a future generation to not experience this harm. I think that there were two distinct moments that I can remember that really contributed to my activism. One, I remember one night, it was my sophomore year in college, and I did a Yahoo search because that was before Google. <laughs> um, so I'm going to date myself. And before AIS was referred to as androgen insensitivity syndrome, it used to be referred to as testicular feminization syndrome. So I put that in a search bar and the characteristics of AIS came up and I literally sat there dumbfounded. I was in shock and I was like, this is my body. And then I got angry because everything that the doctors had told me when I was younger, it wasn't true. They lied to me. I don't like being lied to. And I think at that moment in the fall of 1999, that's when that was sort of like the seedling. Fast forwarding to 2000. I was working as a trans health educator at UCSF, University of California, San Francisco. I was working on the trans project and the trans project was a research project doing sort of data collection of trans communities in the San Francisco Bay Area. At the time, I read this book, As Nature Made Him, by John Colapinto. And in that book, he mentions Dr. Anka Earhart and Dr. John Money both created the protocols that would affect intersex children. The reason why I mentioned that is that in 1992, at Columbia Presbyterian Hospital, Dr. Earhart was a psychotherapist. And she was my therapist for a year and a half. And essentially, when I saw her, she lied to me. She told me that I was born with a small uterus and small ovaries and that they were removed. But I can have children. I can adopt and I can get married and still be happy. But then I came out as gay when I was 14 and because I was on estrogen, she would ask me, did the estrogen make me less gay? Fast forward to 2005, I read this book and he mentions Dr. Earhart and I'm livid. I am livid. And I tell her, you did not win. What you did to me, what you've done to so many other people, the lives that you have affected, in my case, you did not win. And I think at that moment, there was a fire that stirred in my belly and I was committed to intersex justice. I was committed to actually repairing the harm that I had suffered, but also really fighting so that no one, no one would have to undergo what I experienced. The way that medical science imposes a, quote, order, close quote, on bodies in ways that, as you describe from your personal experience, is nothing other than can be described as violence. One of the things that you've done throughout your work, and specifically at the Intersex Justice Project, is to use the experience, the informed experience of Black and brown people with the medical establishment 
as a way to attack and undermine the approach to people who are intersex. And I'm wondering if you can talk a, a little bit about that, the way in which racial justice for you intersects with this issue, because it's another layer, as we've spoken about layers in your life, that's really important. And I want to say this as a side note, I just came back from Savannah, Georgia, where one of the things that I did there was a slave tour of the city. And one of the things that came across in that slave tour was the obsession of people who captured Africans from the beginning with their bodies. Of course. And what their bodies could do. Mm-hmm. And whether or not their bodies could reproduce. Mm. And how to use those bodies. Mm. And the degree to which, even on slave auction blocks, the inspection of reproductive organs of enslaved people was a critical and invasive part of the inspection process. And I can't help but think about all of that when you talk about your experience. Why, for me, intersex justice is so important is that what I have seen historically is that the intersex rights movement has been dominated by this narrative that is very, you know, assimilationist in its approach and also very white in this approach that, you know, I have this intersex variation and this is where it stops. And for me, I am not only intersex, I am black, I'm queer as, you know, the identities that I mentioned earlier, but my blackness and my intersexness are inherently intertwined. They cannot be teased apart. Before moving to England, I saw a geneticist at Emory University. So we have a conversation a couple weeks later. He says that I have partial androgenous sensitivity syndrome, but this is hereditary and it's passed through the women on my mom's side of the family. And he's like, it goes back generations. And I couldn't help but to think about my uncles who were born during Jim Crow and the people who came before them, the people who were enslaved, the people who were in the bowels of these ships, these transatlantic ships from Africa to the Americas. And it made me almost weep for the people who might have been thrown overboard because they had bodies that were atypical. Any number of things that have befallen my ancestors because their bodies, you know, were not typical. I'm wondering for you what you believe the hope is for intersex people and what it represents for all of us. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about the fact that, as you were saying, at 13, when you were an adolescent, your body was trying to make these changes, that your body knew what it was doing. And it was doing it in a way that you felt good about, which means that intersex is natural, right? It's the it's nature trying to do something through variation, which is, we know, the basis for biology. And what for you, then, is the hope for all of us in the ability and the capacity for intersex people to thrive. Yeah, I mean, I I think about what becomes possible when we 
allow intersex variations to exist, right? To exist in their complexity. What becomes possible? What do we allow? What do we bring? What do we call in, you know? When the anti-trans healthcare bills, the sports bills were being introduced, passed in certain states, I was furious. And looking at the fine prints, all of those bills had exclusions, especially the anti-trans healthcare bills, had exclusions to continue doing intersex-related surgeries. So you know that on the surface it's diabolical, but it's even more insidious and it's even more diabolical because it is an attack on sex and gender diversity. If the queer community, if you know, folks in the LGBT community, however folks identify, if we don't support our trans siblings, which are taking a stand in support of gender diversity, inadvertently, we're going to be harming intersex people. And that's why I really believe, especially now with attacks from the far right, I believe that intersex and trans communities have to be allies. There are ways in which our issues overlap and there are ways in which our issues diverge. And I think for me, this is a call to my trans siblings to really get educated around intersex issues. Because what I've also found is that there are a lot of trans people, when they do a little digging, they find out that they have an intersex variation. And so I think intersex and trans communities are actually at the forefront of leading us towards sex and gender revolution, actually. And that's, for me, very exciting. And so I think, you know, for this Intersex Awareness Day, I think it's really a call to folks in the queer community, folks who are not in the queer community, to really sort of see what's going on with each day, with each year. I feel like the awareness of intersex is growing. And I think we need to continue on that trajectory. And for me, you know, I I think about, you know, Octavia Butler and the fact that if we allow our bodies to do what they're trying to do, then there could be so much possibility for humanity that we don't even know. But we keep limiting it through these really medieval and racist and binary rooted systems, which are causing great harm and holding us all back. I want to thank you for your work. And I think that we are all better off from your experience and your leadership and look forward to so much more of it. Thank you so much, Saifa. Yeah, thank you so much, Amara, for the invitation. And yeah, I hope to be in future conversations with you. I think this was really great. And thank you for the quality and the texture of questions that you asked. Of course. Thank you so much. That was Sean Seifawal, who is Black, Intersex, and Trans, with a dog named Justice. Thank you for joining me on the Translash Podcast. Now listen all the way through to the end of the show for something extra. If you like what you heard, please go to Apple Podcasts to rate and review us. You can listen to Translash wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on the web at translash.org to sign up for our weekly newsletter. And you should be signed up for it already. 
But if you're new, I understand. You may not have had the opportunity, but here's your opportunity. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Translash Media. Like us on Facebook and tell your friends. The Translash Podcast is produced by Translash Media. The Translash team includes Oliver Ash Klein and Aubrey Calloway. Our intern is Marana Munson-Burke. Xander Adams is a contributing producer to the show and our sound engineer. Digital strategy is handled by Daniela Capistrano. The music you heard was composed by Ben Draghi and also courtesy of ZZK Records. The Translash Podcast is made possible by the support of foundations and listeners like you. So this week I am looking forward to... Balloon Drop putting on my shelf an award uh, that I have just gotten from the National Association of Black Journalists, their Journalists of Distinction Award. It was a bolt out of the blue. I had no idea and was super thrilled to be recognized for this work, particularly in an organization that has had to do a lot of growth around LGBTQ issues and the inclusion of us and our voices. This was an absolute thrill and is one that I will cherish greatly and proudly. So that's what I'm looking forward to. I just got to put it in a proud place. So that means some books have got to come off the shelf.